So, as, as I said, I was going to start off with a story. So, as a young black kid growing up in a predominantly black community, this community right here, the shades are down, but it's Northview Heights. Um, we say community, we don't say neighborhood, so just a, just a little context difference there. Um, my young, immature eyes have seen a lot of things. There were a myriad of childhood experiences that were positive to my experience. Um, I'll list a couple of them. For example, there was, um, we had summer parades. It sounds very different, but we had summer parades where um, there was community members who would, who would dress up um, in African clothing. And we, they would walk through our, our streets to remind the whole entire neighborhood that our native heritage was worth being celebrated, um, was worth being honored and remembered. And I remember as a kid seeing these people walk through our neighborhood and said, I know him, that's Reggie, that's that guy. And that, that's what they did when I was a younger boy. And then as I got older, they kind of transformed this into a community day. It was a day where we had tons of fun and we would learn about um, our neighborhood and how it was discovered. Um, in the 60s or 50s, Northview Heights was actually a diverse community. It wasn't just all black, but it was a very diverse community. And we also had thriving youth programs where we didn't have to worry about our safety, the lack of food and exposure to the world. I can remember I had some of my best friends in this program. And we also had community leaders, leaders who felt empowered to publicly protest within our neighborhood the injustice that was happening, the gangs and the, and the, the gun violence. Those things kind of shaped my experience as a young kid growing up in Northview Heights. And there were some negative childhood experiences that harmed my development, and I'll list those. For one, there were many kids who couldn't um, be kids because they had to care for siblings. There were the reckless gun violence from residents and police officers. I can remember um, as a, a, a teenager seeing police barricading a dead body behind him as the whole community is is enraged because he's not doing something. He's not moving with urgency. The friends who, who joined gangs because they lacked love and support in their own homes. The friends who sold drugs because that was the only job available at the time. And the aunts and uncles who chose narcotics because the pain of mental health was too unbearable. I experienced these things as a kid and it questioned my safety. But somewhere woven into these two experiences, I was introduced to the faith, which we call Christianity. I attended a predominantly black church where the church services were long. We're talking about five to six hours. Ms. Karen, most of, some people know what those church services are, I do. Um, sitting in those church services were long. Um, the style of worship was liberating with lots of shouting, very different from this church. Um, and their humility and openness to God's spirit awaken a curiosity um, of who God is. But later in high school, 
I gradually found myself in white evangelical churches where everything was completely different. The community, the leaders, the approach to discipleship, um, the style of music was different. Everything was different. Everything was white. To be honest, in these white spaces, I learned to manage the hustle culture of ministry and ignore the cultural microaggressions that were occurring in my black body. I started to ask questions. I started to name things, and I started to protest for change. But every blind eye was tucked under the rug of Jesus. Just focus on the good news. Just focus on the good news. Keep the main thing the main thing and don't focus on anything else. I started to grow skeptical of this institution and the people I was surrounded by. I quickly realized that this place might invite me in, but it wasn't built for me. I became an object of missionary charity. I became the success story, the poster kid. I became the black voice for white people's problems. I became the safe Negro that everyone trusts and loves. We love Shaq. We love him. He's not dangerous like the other black people we know. On WPXI, those kids are dangerous, but Shaq, he loves our Jesus. So I left. But leaving was more difficult than staying because all the emotions I was taught to suppress overwhelmed me. I was betrayed. I felt betrayed. I felt deceived. I felt assaulted. I felt off balance. I felt enraged because I left everything for these people. I left my family. I left all that I known. In retrospect, from this place of harm, I became overtly zealous about my religious and social convictions. My zeal gave me the authority to do violence. I, it justified my right to conspire to wound the abuser. You couldn't tell me what was right or wrong. I believed in my spirit I was doing the right thing. I became narrow-minded and protective about the way God functioned in the world, who he belonged to and who he excluded. I mean, that's a question I kind of ask you guys today. Have you ever felt outrageously protective and zealous for your religious and social commitments? That if anyone contested or defiled your sacred values, you were willing to persecute them. I'm going to say it again. That if anyone contested or defiled your sacred values, you were willing to persecute them if it came down to it, whether on social media, whether in public, whether in personal one-on-one. If the answer is yes, if we're honest, then you are in for a dramatic yet compelling story of Saul, the Pharisee. If you guys have your Bibles, um, most of you guys are looking down. Look at those faithful Christians. Um, if you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. You still love. You can look to the screen. 
and we'll read um, Acts 9, verse 1 through 9 today, and then we'll pray. It starts off like this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see nothing. So they led him to the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat anything. Just sit with that story for a moment. I mean, most of us kind of know the story, but stick with, hold that story for a moment, and let's kind of walk through this story together. At the very beginning of Acts 9, Luke informs us, his readers, that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Reading Acts 9 through a literal lens, we might kind of raise a question. There might be a question that raises in us, why? Why is Saul so ambitious about removing this new form of teaching? Why is he tweaking that word? Stop here. Um, it's not a Greek word. It's an urban word. So let me just define it for you, my white friends in the room. Um, it says this, it's tweaking. Tweaking is tripping or doing something dumb. Why is Saul tripping? Why is he doing something dumb, okay? Add that to your, uh, to your word bank there. Um, so for Christians familiar with this story, our Western approach to Saul's actions seem to assume that Saul is the villain of the story. And as I was reading this, I was asking that question myself. This dude is like, he's out of his mind. But for the Eastern reader, it's different. He's not the villain of the story, and we'll figure that out. It's important to remember that Saul, the Tarsus kid who was taught under other Pharisees, always believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He never for a moment questioned nor compromised his belief in that God. He was living in a narrative that said all those promises will come true. God would do what is right. He will establish the temple and he will send a Messiah to our people to redeem the world. Again, Saul never questioned or compromised his belief in Israel's God. He loved Yahweh with all of his heart and mind and strength. He was devoted to God. Some other context to consider are two men from the ancient Jewish world with whom Saul identifies with. These men are Phineas 
and Elijah. I'm just going to do some uh, of the, the way I was raised. I'm going to bring some of those roots back. So can we say Phineas? Can we say Elijah? Thank you. You guys can talk. Thank you. Um, they are two great messengers of zeal. So to help with context in the book of Numbers, during a vulnerable time when Israel is traveling with God through the wilderness, we find that the women of Midian began to seduce the men of Israel to sexual sin and to sacrifice to their gods. And God is not quite pleased with this idolatry. So as someone who is perfectly righteous, he decides to remove the corruption from the community of Israel with the help of Moses. The Lord gives Moses a command to help the sin within the community of Israel. He says, you know what, Moses? You know what, Mo? Just take all the leaders out of the camp, kill them, and expose them in broad light before the Lord so that the Lord fears anger may turn away from Israel. So as Moses is doing just that, guess who rises to the occasion? Phineas. The author records this. When Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw this, he left, his, he left the assembly, took the spear into his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both, them, and both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites have stopped. But those who died in the plague number 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, had turned my anger away from the Israelites, since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am. I did not put an end to them in my zeal. So we have the story of Phineas guy who's a messenger of zeal, does the Lord's work. And then we have Elijah. Most of us are familiar with Elijah in the Old Testament story, where he challenges the prophets of Baal to a spiritual showdown. He taunts the 400 prophets of Baal to make their altar um, and call down on their gods. So they both do that the 400 prophets do that, and then Elijah sets his up, and then if you know the story, he pours water onto it. And they both pray to their gods, and as they're praying, God's demonstrating power runs down, rains down on Elijah's altar to confirm that Israel's God was the true God to follow. But in that same act, Elijah responds with zeal by killing them, killing all the prophets who were leading Israel into paganism. So we have, again, we have both of these stories, Phineas and we have Elijah, both men who were zealous for the faith. Now let's bring those two men back to Acts 9. What we see in the first few verses of Scripture is Saul role modeling the embodiment of zeal from these two men. Phineas and Elijah. Impure things are happening in Jerusalem. 
These Messiah worshipers are now the new prophets of Baal. They are straying, unrighteous Jews who are gone bad. Therefore, we must do sacred violence to stump out the nonsense to put Israel back on track. This is for God. Are you guys tracking with me? So he is embodying the zeal from these two men to demonstrate righteous zeal. So Saul honestly believes he was doing this for the sake of God's purposes. Again, he desired to honor God. He devoted himself to the purity of the land, the purity of Hebrew teaching, and the purity of his people. This is why we see Saul in Acts 9 breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. This is why he kills in the name of righteousness. This is why he goes to the high priest for legal permission to arrest and bind men and women of the way in Damascus. As a Pharisee, I, Saul, must do something honorable. I, Saul, must do something zealous. I must righteous zeal. I appreciate... um, Willie James Jennings comment about Saul's violent zeal. He states this, and it'll come up on the screen. He says, no one is more dangerous than the one with the power to take life and who already has mind and sight set on those who are a threat to a safe future. Just briefly, this doesn't just make sense or ring truth to the context of Jewish history. This quotation rings true to our American history. The history of countless genocides of innocent people who were tragically murdered at the hands of power to maintain systems of a safe future. This is how the power of fear thrives when our comforts, our control, and our need for power are opposed. See, when we fear, We misinterpret God's safe future, his eternal plan to make our narrative the prime reality. I'll say it again a lot slower. When we fear as Americans, we misinterpret God's safe future to make our narrative, whatever that narrative is, the prime reality. So carrying on with the Acts narrative, Luke tells us that Saul doesn't question his conquests. He doesn't turn back to the high priests and say, um, you know what, I've been been thinking about this for a while, and I think I am tripping. You know, like, I I reacted on my my emotions, and, you know, you can just take these papers and rip them up. You know, my feet hurt. I've been walking everywhere. I'm dehydrated. No, he kind of continues his vision of justice because he believes he is doing the right thing to strengthen the people of God. And the Lord's disciples have no argument and certainly no authority to thwart his zeal. They have no chance against Saul. But what Saul does not yet know is that the road of Damascus has changed. It is a space now inhabited by the disrupting and expansive spirit of the Lord. Saul pursues, but he is being pursued. 
It's good. Let's say that again. Saul pursues. I'm just trying to keep you guys up. You know, this is call and response. Paul, Saul pursues. But he is being pursued. <laughs> I'm like, bring my ass back to the notes. Okay. Um, yes, he is being pursued. And the Lord is going to really expand this out in this story here. Luke tells us his readers, as he near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. If we fast forward in the Acts story, we see Saul give um, his account in greater detail. Um, he says to King Agrippa, about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. The time of this account is so significant to the narrative of Saul's conversion. Again, we will breeze over that as Westerners, but for an Eastern reader, if you were a Jew during this time, praying three times a day was customary. They prayed at 9 a.m., they prayed at noon, and they also prayed at 3 p.m. So my assumption is Saul, the devout Jew, the Pharisee, must have been praying. We aren't sure what he's praying for, but the scriptures do tell us as he is praying, the killer was confronted and stopped in his tracks and met by an overwhelming presence. This divine presence brings Saul to his feet, along with a question that ripples through the very core of his religious commitments. He asked him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This question is too massive for him to handle because it's intimate. There's other translations that say, why are you hurting me? In our world, this question flows out of the mouth of the poor and marginalized. Why are you hurting me? It can be challenging to see God in the face of the oppressed or those opposed, to comprehend deeply that God advocates for them. Why are you hurting me? I love everything about God's question. See, Jesus replies not as the king of kings. He could have. But, as, but he communicates and replies as the one who is suffering. The one who stands in solidarity with the very one Saul is persecuting. See, this is such, as I was reading it, this is such an encouragement for us as people that our Savior, our Messiah, is no passive participant in the suffering of the faithful, but one who sits and understands and advocates for our suffering. See, Saul knows he is on the road that has been made holy ground, and he asks God the right question. He asks him, who are you, Lord? He doesn't even know this is Jesus yet, but he asks a respectable question of like, who are you? Who presence am I in? The Lord says, I am Jesus. Can you just imagine 
what that must have been like for him, of someone who was a Pharisee, and he's responsible for killing Stephen. Stephen in his sermon has been telling the people that God operates outside of Jerusalem, and then he meets the God outside of Jerusalem on the road of Damascus. Well, Damascus. It's like, what is going on here? So this is the revelation that now penetrates Saul's being and will transform his identity. He turns from this abstract God of Israel to the concrete Jesus. What an amazing story. The God of infinite love has touched the religious. The zeal, the zealous love of God has crossed boundaries to reach the zealous Pharisee Saul. What a profound story of God not only seeking out the outsider, because Dennis talked about um, the eunuch, but God also seeks the insider, the religious person. See, this is even harder for me at times because I want to decide who's in and who's out, right? We all do it. I do it too. Like, uh, God's not really for the religious. He's for the marginalized. But God, in this picture, he is seeking after the religious man. The rest of Saul's story in Acts, 1, Acts 9, verse 1 to 9, is a kind of death and resurrection experience. Because for three days... He is blind and did not eat or drink anything. Then three days later, he's baptized, the scales fall off his eyes, and he's commissioned to serve the name of Jesus and set on a journey to discover what it means to follow him. So what does this mean for us as believers in the room, non-believers in the room? Church, Saul's conversion is not only about pushing Saul to see the God of Israel in Jesus or to assert the truth of who Jesus is. It is, as we read through Acts, an invitation for us to look inward at the ways that we too can become narrow-minded with our religious and social commitments. I'm going to say that a lot more slower. This is an invitation for us to look inward at the ways we too can become narrow-minded with our religious and social commitments. See, it's easy to portray ourselves in the story as vulnerable disciples in Damascus hiding from the angry Saul. But is it possible that we too can be Saul? We too can mimic Saul's blind ambitions in the name of God. Just like Saul, we too can be conceived. We too can be so convinced of the error of others that we can't see the new things God is doing and misread them completely. Just for reference, we see this play out on both ends of the spectrum. We have our um, Christian progressives over here and we have our Christian conservatives over here And both of these camps look to eliminate their opponent when they step out of line, right? And the narrative in both camps is we hold firmly to our sacred values and we will persecute you if you threaten them. 
We do it. We all do it. I do it. But the deeper question is, and it's a question that we don't think about a lot, is what fear are we protecting? Is it the fear of, I don't want my kids to be conformed to the ways of the world? Is it because I want to be right? What fear are we actually protecting? No one thinks of themselves as a persecutor in the stories we tell ourselves about our own commitments. In this state of reality, do we ever think about the very question Jesus asked Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you hurting me? American church, American church, why are you hurting me? We would be shocked to hear Jesus say that to us. Why are you hurting me? To be honest, I will be shocked to hear him say that too. To hear him say, Shaq, Shaq, why are you hurting me? Why are you persecuting me? Friends, God invites us to consider an intimate question. This is a question for you to to digest and think about. How do our religious, political, and social commitments keep us from seeing the new thing God is up to? Think about that question. How do our religious, social, and political commitments keep us from seeing the new things God is up to? How do we narrow instead of expand God's mission in the world? What in our good intentions do we misread completely? Seriously, consider that question. I'm not asking you to leave your political party to join another one. It's just not about that. It's about who and what are you serving. I'm not saying we shouldn't have zeal for the things of God because I think we should. I'm trying to say is don't let your zeal be done in blindness. Don't let your zeal be done in the name of self. Don't let your zeal be done in the name of, I just want everybody to know that I'm not racist and I'm doing this because I want to be cool. Don't let your zeal be done in the name of self. But despite our shortcomings, there is good news. There's always good news. There is mercy. There is holiness. There is the concrete presence of God. There is a God who is willing, a God who is patient, a God whose love will meet and disrupt us on the very path we walk to remind us what his spirit is up to. But the question is, will we respond? Will we respond to the interruption? Will we respond to the interruption? Let's pray. Jesus, we so desperately want you to meet us. And Lord, you are the most forgiving person, most patient, most good. 
And God, we get it wrong. I get it wrong. Both sides get it wrong. The world gets it wrong. And we need your perspective. We need your spirit. We need your love. Because there is love for the outsider and the insider. There is love for the religious person and the non-believer. So meet us where we are and remind us that our zeal can be good if it's directed through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.